Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Professor Mark Cheatham of Cumberland University. Professor Cheatham is an award-winning author and editor of American history, including The Coming of Democracy, Presidential Campaigning in the Age of Jackson, Jacksonian and Antebellum Age, People and Perspectives. Cheatham is also the project director and co-editor of the papers of Martin Van Buren, which are housed in Cumberland University's Vise Library. And today we will be discussing Professor Cheatham's Andrew Jackson, Southerner, highly researched, fresh, new perspective at Andrew Jackson and his impactful roots, uh, the Journal of American History. Mark Cheatham is a fine historian who has, in Andrew Jackson Southerner, produced a well-researched, nicely written account of one of the nation's most controversial presidents. Again, Professor, thank you so much for being with us today. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. To get started, a little bit about your backgrounds and how you became interested in Andrew Jackson. Uh, I was influenced by a professor, uh, so I teach at Cumberland University, but I also received my bachelor's degree from here, um, and when I was an undergraduate, I had a professor who was one of the first uh, docents at the Hermitage, so he and his wife had given tours at the Hermitage, which is Andrew Jackson's home here in Nashville, and I took a Jacksonian class from him and was just uh, enthralled by the stories that he told. Um, in hindsight, some of them may have been a little embellished. Uh, he was a great storyteller as a professor. Um, so some of them were embellished, I think, but he, uh, he just introduced Jackson to me in a way that I'd never heard before. And he convinced me to go work at the Hermitage uh, during my senior year of college. And that just brought me even more into Andrew Jackson's world. And uh, I just became fascinated by someone who was so controversial uh, who was such a, a steadfast supporter of the union, but yet was also someone who was in favor of states' rights and just had all these contradictions. So that's what really drew me into studying Andrew Jackson. What were the very early influences that shaped Andrew Jackson? So for those who don't know, Andrew Jackson grew up in the along the border of North Carolina and South Carolina here in the United States. He was born in 1767. He was influenced by, I think, a couple of things. One was his family. So his father died around the time that he was born. Uh, his mother and two older brothers died uh, during Jackson's early life. And so I think Jackson's family, uh, and in reality, the lack of his family by the time he was an early teenager, um, created within him this desire in the future to create his own family uh, artificially, and that came through marriage, that came through kinship networks that he developed. So I think those early influences really shaped how he viewed himself and viewed the community around him in the future. So that was one thing that was an early influence. I think a second early influence was the fact that growing up in this Waxhaws region on the Carolina border, um, it was an area that had been um, racked by violence between white settlers and Native Americans. Um, it was an area that was part of the American Revolution. Uh, Jackson himself witnessed uh, battles and conflicts 
that took place in the area. And so it was a violent area, and it was an area that I think shaped his perspective on the world. Um, uh, Jackson was well known for his temper. He was well known for sometimes resorting to violence. And I think part of that came from this background that he experienced in the Waxhaws. What led you to conclude that Jackson, who often is called a populist, was actually an a frontiers person, was actually an elite Southern gentleman? That's a great question. It's one that um, I've faced a lot over the years. For me, when, when I was learning about Jackson initially, I was reading all the histories that talked about him being a frontiersman, that talked about him being a populist. Um, and I think that there certainly are elements of that in him um, throughout his life. But as I started to do research, what I realized was that Jackson really reflects more of what we consider the South, the American South, than he did the frontier region or fact with populism. So let me handle, let me handle them a little bit differently. Um, if you look at Jackson's background, he, he grows up in this Waxhaws region, moves to Charleston, South Carolina, moves up to Charlotte, North Carolina, eventually finds his way to Nashville in Middle Tennessee uh, at the age of 21. And by the time he's made it to Nashville, he is someone who owns at least one enslaved person. He is someone who has engaged in at least one duel he is someone who, when he enters Nashville society, seems to be accepted as a member of the elite. Many of the people who settled Nashville, at least the, the, the founders and the leaders of society there, came from Virginia, and they came from elite society in Virginia. And, of course, Virginia reflected, uh, in many ways, the ideals of Southern society at that time. So as I started to conceptualize this, it seemed to me that when Jackson arrives in Nashville, he doesn't arrive as sort of the cowboy striding onto the frontier. He doesn't arrive as someone who uh, is, is still being formed and shaped by what he experienced. Of course, we all are as adults, but he is someone who at the age of 21 really has developed into his own individual person at that point. And the actions that he takes when he's in Nashville reflect his belief, and I think the people around him, their belief that he was an elite Southern gentleman. Uh, so he engages in buying and selling more enslaved people. He engages in buying and selling land. He engages in building plantations. These are all uh, trademarks and hallmarks of someone who considers himself an elite Southern gentleman. So to me, when I, when I see Jackson, I see someone who aspired to become and who became uh, one of these Southern planters that we talk about so much in U.S. history. So that is the, the elite Southern planter part of his identity. Um, the populist part, I think Jackson certainly to some extent uh, embraces and reflects populism, but in many cases he is using that for his own purposes. So as an elite Southern planter, as one of the wealthiest men in Tennessee, as one of the largest enslavers in Tennessee, uh, he is someone who who taps into the rhetoric of populism, but in many cases he is doing so only to further his ambitions and his the ambitions of the region in which he is he has settled in. So to me, when you look at Jackson, yes, I, I think there's some genuine authenticity when it comes to his belief in his own populism, but in many cases it's just rhetoric that he uses to advance his political career. 
How does being a Southerner affect and impact Jackson's presence? So Jackson, as a Southerner, is someone who, um, as president, embraces many of the ideals that white, elite white Southern men in particular um, uh, wanted to achieve. So, for example, as president, he is very much focused on the removal of Native Americans. Uh, this is something that uh, he, had, he had done throughout his entire career, uh, beginning before his military career during the War of 1812. Certainly during the War of 1812, uh, he spends most of his time fighting Native Americans, not fighting the British, even though that is what makes him a national hero is, is the Battle of New Orleans on January 8th of 1815. But Jackson spends most of his time actually fighting Native Americans. Uh, after the War of 1812, uh, he spends the next few years fighting Native Americans, removing them from land, uh, etc. So when Jackson becomes president, he already has this, this pattern as an adult uh, of removing Native Americans, pushing them off of land, uh, either by force or by persuasion or by both. Um, and and as, as president, by focusing on removing Native Americans, he is doing what he's always done. He's opening up land for white settlement. Uh, and that ties into a second aspect of Jackson as a Southerner as president is that he's a defender of slavery. Again, this ties into his own personal identity as an enslaver, but it also serves the interest of the region he's part of. So uh, probably the, there are several examples I could point to, but one of the best examples is in 1835. There are a number of um, attacks on African-Americans that take place uh, by people who oppose abolitionism, who wanted to, to strengthen and continue to perpetuate the institution of slavery. So Jackson as president um, reinforces uh, those attacks and he does this by telling his attorney general, uh, Amos Kendall, um, who had written to Jackson telling him that, you know, abolitionists are sending all this inflammatory material into, into the Southern post offices. We need to make sure that, um, that this is stopped because, uh, you know, enslaved people are going to get word of this. They're going to either read this material or have it read to them, and then they're going to rise up in rebellion. And Jackson supports uh, Kendall in his actions to restrict uh, the mailings of these abolitionist materials. So as president, in those two instances, to me, those are the two prime examples of how Jackson allows his Southern identity, his identity as an enslaver, as a Southern planter, to affect his policies as president. So as president, he was 100% in favor of the extension of slavery to the new territories as, as president? He, he was in favor of, of extending slavery and of territorial expansion. For Jackson, even though the term manifest destiny is something that, that comes about uh, or is coined uh, in 1845, um, Jackson throughout his career is someone who is focused on the idea of manifest destiny. And for him, manifest destiny is not just territorial expansion, but it's also the expansion or the extension of slavery as part of that territorial expansion. This is a what if, and I know what ifs are you know, hard to, to answer sometimes or maybe not even fair. Jackson, I think you had alluded to before, uh, was against nullification. 
a strong proponent of the union. What if Jackson had lived closer to the time of the Civil War? Union or Confederacy? I've gotten that question a lot as well. Okay. Uh, it, is, it is such a tough question because you're dealing with what ifs. Uh, the Civil War uh, occurs or starts 16 years after Jackson dies. So it's hard to say. Um, I think you can look at it two ways. One, Jackson was a very strong supporter of the Union. Uh, he, and I think a lot of that comes from his participation in the U.S. Army. Um, and, and it's interesting because that sense of nationalism that comes from his military experience in some ways works against his Southern perspective. Um, so the nullification crisis was a crisis that was ostensibly about the tariff, but really was about a state's right to determine um, the constitutionality of federal laws. And you would think Jackson, who was someone who generally supported states' rights, you would think that he would be on the side of the nullifiers, but he's not. Um, this sense of nationalism, this sense of unionism comes to the forefront um, uh, during that crisis of 1832-33. So from one perspective, you can look at Jackson in the Civil War and think, well, he probably would have supported the Union. Uh, he was someone who, who had stood for the Union in 1832-33. He probably would have done the same thing in 1861. That seems fair to say. On the other hand, Jackson was also very firmly entrenched in slavery. And as the, the events leading up to the Civil War testified, slavery became the crux issue um, that Americans were focused on in the, in the run-up to 1860-61. So would Jackson have been pulled in that direction because of his, his attachment to slavery and his dependence upon enslaved labor? It's hard to say. I, I could go both ways. Um, I, I could definitely see him supporting the Union and, and going for um, keeping the, the United States together. But frankly, I could also see him going in the other direction. And particularly once Lincoln introduced um, military action um, in, in April of 1861, I could definitely see Jackson moving in the direction of secession. Is, is there merit to, um, to, to Tocqueville's claim that Jackson won the presidency solely by the memory of his victory in New Orleans? How great a victory was that? It was a significant victory. It, 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 put, it put Jackson on the national stage, um, certainly. Um, you know, he, he and the American forces there at New Orleans in January uh, of 1815 uh, were, were overwhelmed uh, in terms of numbers. They were, they were greatly outmatched. I think it was four to one in terms of, of troops on the British side compared to the American side. Uh, so Jackson and, and his men being able to win that victory against um, an overwhelming mass of British forces, many of whom were experienced having fought Napoleon in Europe. Um, it, was a, it was a tremendous victory. Uh, the fact that it occurred after the peace treaty had been signed in Europe um, sort, of, sort of softens the victory in hindsight, but at the time, Americans embraced it as this great victory. Um, and probably many Americans believed that this was what sealed the war, the victory for the United States against Britain in the war of 1812, even though it was a stalemate, um, technically. Um, so in any case, I, I, it was a great victory. And I think after that victory, you start to see Jackson come onto the national stage. People begin to celebrate him. 
Some people even mention him as a potential presidential candidate in 1816, um, so eight years before he actually ran. Um, so is his victory solely attributable, attributable to that? I don't think it's solely attributable to that, but it certainly gives Jackson a platform. Um, when you look at why Jackson was elected, I do think his, his, his military heroism plays a part but it also comes down to the fact that in 1824, he lost a controversial election and he used that, he and his supporters used that to their advantage to make the case in 1828 that the election had been stolen, not just from Jackson, not just from his supporters, but from the people of the United States, that democracy had been subverted, that John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay had conspired to take uh, the democratic will of the people way uh, in, in that election. So Jackson uses that as, as a campaign theme, and he and his supporters hammer on that theme over and over and over. And I think that is probably what cinched the victory for him in 1828. But certainly he doesn't get to that point, I don't think, without the Battle of New Orleans and without the victory there.